like to turn back to uh, our study in the book of Zechariah this morning. Um, I'd like to bring you a few more thoughts uh, in this uh, great Old Testament book. When you read through it, um, as is easily done, uh, you'll notice that there are a lot of similarities between prophetic statements in Daniel, and especially in the prophetic statements in the book of Revelation. Um, it is a, a book of great encouragement, not only to uh, the Jews at that day who had came back from Babylonian captivity, but it should be a book of great encouragement to us today. Now, the reason that I also want to make that statement and want us to focus on that is a lot of people that you read about this and a lot of things that you may listen to about the book of Zechariah, they put the application to it way out in the future somewhere with no application to today. If there's no application to the Bible today, why do we have it? If there's no application of the Bible today, why do we have it? Paul told us in Romans chapter 15 that the things that are written aforetime, things that are written in the past, are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. God's Word is given to us uh, as, as a, a lamp of hope in this dark and dreary life. In this wretched world we live in, God has given us His Word, not that we may be fearful of tomorrow, but that we may actually have joy and peace and comfort. What we'd like to speak to you today is, we, we left off in chapter 1 last week, so we want to uh, pick up in chapter 2. We'd like to speak to you today on the house of God as it's laid out uh, in the book of Zechariah. Um, keep in mind also as as we may look at some of these things in the future, don't know how much we'll get into it, but just because you're in chapter 2, that doesn't mean that something somewhere else in the book doesn't apply to this same chapter, but if we were to run hither and yon, we'd never stay in the same place twice. So um, we want to kind of try and condense some of our thoughts to one certain passage uh, just for a while. Um, but th this is this is a wonderful book. Uh, and the person and work of Jesus Christ is written all over this book, from beginning to the end. It's a little more obvious in the later chapters of it that you, you start reading. You know, when you get to, to, to chapter 9, uh, for example, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Who did that? Jesus did that. that that's quoted in Matthew 21 and verse 5. So uh, there are several passages within this book that are directly quoted in the New Testament and directly applied to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some things in this book that apply to the second coming, but a lot of it has to do with the first coming. And I think one of the reasons that people put this book so far into the future is they put very little emphasis on what occurred the first time Jesus came. 
The first time Jesus came, we're told, he tried to set up a kingdom. But the Jews rejected him. He went home. He'll come back the second time and he'll set it up the second time. My question is, if he couldn't do it the first time, what makes you think he can do it the second time? If there's anything that Jesus can't do, what mean, what makes you think he can do anything? No, he did not fail the first time he came. The first time he came, he did exactly what his purpose and work in this life was to do. He saved his people from their sins. He also set up something else. But let's digress a little bit. Uh, chapter 1 of Zechariah uh, gives us sort of a, a little bit of an, an overall view of a few things. And then I think chapter 2 kind of uh, embellishes a little, a little bit on that. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 does that. Genesis chapter 1 gives us uh, the, the six days of creation followed by the seventh day of rest. Uh, and in the middle of chapter 1, you know, on the last day, the sixth day, God created man. Well, then in chapter 2, God sort of expounds on, on what he did in chapter 1. And a lot of people get confused. They think, well, man was created in chapter 1, and then all of a sudden in chapter 2 we have man being created again. And, and for some reason people don't use just good logic when they read the Bible to realize that chapter 1 is an overview. Chapter 2 is a microscopic view of something that occurred in chapter 1. To me, that's simple. Well, Zechariah sort of does the same thing, uh, at least with this little passage here. In chapter 1, remember he said in verse uh, 15, I am sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Um, God had sent the Babylonians, he had sent Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to ransack Jerusalem for their disobedience. Uh, but in the process of them ransacking Jerusalem, uh, burning down the temple and whatnot, and leading the people away into captivity, they sort of overstepped their bounds in their punishment of Israel. And God said, I'm displeased with the extent to which the heathen have gone. I was already angry with them, and now they, what they did, it just helped forward the affliction. In the first few verses of chapter 1, God had told the nation of Israel, his people, if you'll turn to me, I'll turn back to you. This is a story of repentance. God's people, if you will turn back to God, he will turn back to you. It's really that simple, right? It's easy to say. It's a whole lot easier to do. But this is the pattern that's laid out in the Old Testament, though. God tells his people, turn back to me, and I'll turn back to you. And they turn back to him, and he turns back to them, and then they turn away, and he turns away. And then guess what? He tells them, turn back to me, and I'll turn back to you, and they turn back to him. This is a method of discipleship that, that all of us deal with, is we are sometimes closer to God than we are at other times. And when we turn away from God, he turns away from us in a, in a disciplinary manner. Well, what are we going to do, though, because we keep seeing this revolving door of God's people turning to him, and he turning to them, and they turn away, and he turns away. How are we going to stop this, is the question. Well, when the angel asked the Lord in chapter 1, he said, how long 
Wilt thou, this is verse 12, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? There's a constant problem between God and his people. The Lord tells him, not only is he jealous for Jerusalem, this is verse 14, but in verse 16, listen to what he says. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. Now, here is something completely different. He doesn't say that they are returned to me, so I have returned to them. Now, here's a point where he says, I am returned to Jerusalem. Here is something that the Lord himself is going to take upon himself to do for Jerusalem. I am returned unto Jerusalem And notice that next word, with what? Mercies. Did you notice that? That's a plural word, isn't it? He's not returned with mercy. He's returned with multiple mercies. I think that'll play itself out here in a little bit. But I wanted to notice, um, I wanted to notice this concept of he has returned to Jerusalem. Uh, In Isaiah 53, I'd like to read uh, a little passage here. It should be fairly familiar uh, to all of us. Uh, But Isaiah 53 is one of the uh, clearest passages in the Old Testament that speaks concerning the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Isaiah 53 is about. It's about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'd like you to notice your part in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is what the people have done. And this is what we continue to do in our daily life. Regardless of how much we try to do what is right, we so often find ourselves doing what is wrong. Is that not true? No matter how often we say, I'm going, I'm going to do better tomorrow. And I, you know, I look at my own life and I think, we were going to be better. Our family was going to be better. We were going to have a better marriage than the ones I've seen in the past. We were going to have a better marriage than the ones I've seen around me. We were going to have better children. My children weren't going to do that. And guess what we did? We ended up like everybody else. But because we, we forgot. The biggest problem with our marriage were the two sinners that were involved in it. If those two sinners had not have been involved in our marriage, our marriage would have been a hundred times better. Somehow when you stand before a preacher and before God and before witnesses and say for better or for worse, We hear the better part and we forget about the worst part and don't know how bad it can be. And we really don't understand what it really means to love somebody unconditionally. We really don't understand what it means when God has said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love and with loving kindness I have drawn thee. And so many people don't understand the doctrine of the preservation of the saints because they cannot fathom that God would love you just unconditionally in the person of Jesus Christ and see your sins 
put away by His finished work and welcome you to glory without your help. They can't see that. But here's your part in the crucifixion of Christ. You didn't help Him on the glory. You helped Him be nailed there. All we like sheep have what? Turned aside everyone to his own way. But here he says in verse 6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 5 says that uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You You catch that? With His stripes we are healed. You see that? Okay, people that had turned aside, God had laid on Him the iniquity of us all, and He, like a lamb, before the shears and before the slaughters, was dumb. He he, he didn't say a word. And with His stripes we are healed. Y'all got that, right? Turn with me to 2 Peter. Turn to the New Testament to the book of 2 Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, begin reading with verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So what do we have here? We have an uh, an explanation or an application of the lamb that was dumb before his shears and before the slaughterers, that's what Peter's talking about. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. What do you do when somebody hollers at you? Holler back, right? What do you do when somebody insults you? You insult back. What do you do when somebody lies about you? You fight back. That's, that's natural human tendency. What did Jesus do? When he was lied about, when he was yelled at, when he was mocked, what did he do? Well, Pilate said, answer thou not me. Don't you know that I have power to release thee and I have power to condemn thee? And at that point, Jesus spoke up and said, "Um, not exactly, Pilate. You could have no power at all against me. The Scripture says against me. The Scripture does not say over me. People have... Uh, have misquoted that verse. The verse does not say you could have no power over me. Nobody has power over Jesus at all, at any point. But it does say that thou could not have power against me except it were given thee from my Father which is above. 
So he kept quiet. Now, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Did you catch it? Isaiah said, by, your, by his stripes ye are healed. Peter says it's not our anymore. Past tense. It's a were healed. When Jesus came and died on the cross, it's not a present thing anymore. It's a past completed action. We are not our healed. We were healed. And notice verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now are returned, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What, what position is God's people in nowadays? Right now we are returned. By ourself? No. By the work of Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Paul uh, speaks to this end in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ... Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What's happened here? God's done something. God knows that it is impossible for mankind to save himself. God knows that it is impossible for you and me to live holy and righteous and godly enough to save ourselves. So what has he done? He has returned to Jerusalem with mercies. One last one uh, in this. It's found in the book of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And verse 26. Romans chapter 11 and verse 26 and says, So all Israel shall be saved. And that, that phrase in and of itself needs about an hour and a half worth of explaining uh, because the Bible says that they are not all Israel that are of Israel. And then it says all Israel shall be saved. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, there is an Israel that's by race and there is an Israel that's by grace. I am not an Israelite by race. But I hope I've seen evidence in my life and hope I've seen evidence in your life that we're Israelites by grace. And the Israelites by grace shall be saved. Notice this. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Who's doing the turning? Is Jacob doing the turning? This is Romans 11 verse 26. Who's doing the turning? Is Jacob doing the turning? Jacob turning away ungodliness? No. Who's turning away? God is turning ungodliness away from Jacob. And he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. So he says in Zechariah, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. Um, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, he says, the Jerusalem that it is now, the city that 
existed in Paul's day. He says the Jerusalem that is now is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is the mother of us all. Even in the Bible, it makes a distinction between two different Jerusalems. Physical, real Jerusalem, located in the Middle East. A Jerusalem and Israel by race. But he says the Jerusalem that is above, this Jerusalem of grace, is the mother of us all. It is the mother of all God's people and the mother of truth that is in this world, is what he's having reference to there. Um, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. I'd like to think here, as I, as I read through Zechariah 1, that the mercies are what's outlined following this. And then chapter 2 kind of picks up with these two verses. So let's read uh, Zechariah 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, plural. One of the mercies that's laid out here is my house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and the line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So his house will be built, and a line shall be stretched upon it. Verse 17. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Is that not a great list of mercies? That his people, his cities, through prosperity, shall yet be spread abroad. The Lord shall comfort Zion. The Lord shall yet choose Jerusalem. A whole list of mercies laid out here. You say, well, how, how, how are they going to be spread abroad through prosperity? Does that mean we're going to work and labor for this? You remember that the Lord told Isaiah, he said, my word that goeth forth from my mouth, shall not return unto me void, but it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. You and I know what it means to have our voice or our word return unto us void. You ever told anybody to do something and they didn't do it? You ever had somebody at work say that they would do something and they didn't do it? The very idea, the very idea that God could look at a sinner and beg and plead with him, and the sinner resist him, is foreign to God's Word. When God speaks, it happens. When God spoke in the creation, the creation did not say, I'll get back to you on that, let me think about it. When God spoke to the creation, it didn't say, no, I don't want to be that. When God spoke, it occurred, it happened. His Word is effectual. His Word is powerful. His Word is quick and powerful. And by the way, in Hebrews 4, when it talks about the Word of God that's quick and powerful, it's not this book he's talking about. He's talking about the actual, literal words of God, that when God speaks, it happens. When I was a young child many years ago, there was a commercial on TV for... I think it was a law firm called, I know it wasn't a law firm, um, it was an economic firm, E.F. Hutton. Y'all remember that that group uh, of people? Some, some say yes, some say no. But the commercial was, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And, the, and one commercial I remember most, they're at a funeral. And they're all talking and chatting. 
And, and somebody in the congregation mentions E.F. Hutton, and even the dead person sits up and listens. What? Because when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. If we think we are that powerful and so important, how much more powerful is the God of glory? Because I don't think E.F. Hutton's voice had the power to raise the dead, but I guarantee you through Scripture, the Bible says that God does and can and will. His city through prosperity shall spread abroad. When God speaks, it happens. Uh, one thing it said here is that his, shall, his house shall be built in it and a line shall be stretched upon it. Would you drop down to chapter 2 now? Um, this will be the third vision that Zechariah receives. Uh, some have said he received eight visions in one night. Uh, so be it, if that was it. But this is the third vision uh, that Zechariah receives. And I'd like for you to notice here, it says in verse 1, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. When, when it comes to the idea of uh, measuring Jerusalem, you may immediately think about what is written in Revelation. This city of Jerusalem, it's four square, that the length is equal to the breadth, is equal to the height, and, and, and so we understand, well, yes, heaven's world is a, it's a perfect world, it fits four square, it's even on all sides. But is that really what we're talking about when we talk about measuring the city? We're talking about simple feet and inches? I, I don't believe so. Uh, it's possible, if you were living in Zechariah's time, it would be completely possible uh, that when Zechariah is talking about God building a house, building a new house, Zechariah is speaking about building a new house and the congregation's listening and they're looking over Zechariah's shoulder. They're seeing the foundation being laid and they're seeing this physical building being constructed. So they're looking at the destruction around them. They're looking at the devastation around them. And here's a promise that what you've lost, you're going to be regained. But we're not in the Old Testament. We have a benefit that those people didn't have. We've got a completed, finished New Testament. And while to them, the building of that physical temple was a great hope to them, there's something that we look for that's far greater than that. It's not the building of buildings. It's the regeneration of God's people. That's what we look at. We want to see God speaking to people and converting sinners. He does that by Himself. I am no aid to that. I am no assistance to that. I feed the living. He quickens the dead. I feed the living. That's it's just as simple as that. So when we're talking about measuring something here, we're probably not talking about necessarily physical measurements. Let, let's turn to Ezekiel 43. There's a promise 
in Zechariah that he says, my house will be built. Do you realize that in the Bible there are two types of houses of God described? Are you aware of this? Let me show you what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 43. When you find it, say amen. Good. Ezekiel 43 and verse 10. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel. Now, that ought to be clear enough to anybody who can read that there's a house that the house can see. And one is a physical house and one is a spiritual house. That the people of God are a house of God directed to look at the temple of God, which is also the house of God. But I'd like you to notice this here. Let's just read this passage. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. Oh, we've got a house here and we've got some measuring going on. Right? And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them This is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain. The whole limit thereof roundabout shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. So the measuring of the house isn't the width of the walls and the height of the ceiling then. We're talking about something deeper than that, more important than that. There used to be a time in America where uh, if you were an old line true biblical church, you met in a white wood building out in the middle of nowhere. Y'all ever remember hearing this? You didn't have indoor plumbing. Y'all had to go to the outhouse somewhere. And you sure as the world didn't have a lunchroom. That was just a, a, a test of disfellowship right there. Well, we got some dumb rules among us, don't we? What should be the rule whereby we say, they are in fellowship or out of fellowship. It's not the color of their building. It's not the color of the carpet. It's not whether it's wood or brick. It's what comes out of the pulpit. You remember when Paul was talking in Ephesians chapter 4? In Ephesians chapter 4, he said, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. What are these four gifts for? These apostles prophets, evangelists, and the pastor-teacher gift. What is it for? He says for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we come unto the stature or the fullness of the measure of the person of Christ. In your life, you're not supposed to act like me. You're not supposed to act like the people in the church. You're not supposed to act like your parents. You're not supposed to act like your children. You're not supposed to act like anybody else. You're supposed to act like God. You're supposed to measure your life by God. If you've got somebody in this life that you look up to, I promise you that person's going to fail you. 
nobody in this world asks to be your idol. Oh, but people idolize sports figures, don't they? They idolize actors and actresses. They idolize all sorts of people around them. And then that person fails and their faith is shattered. And you have to realize your faith was in the wrong thing. God does not say, be holy for John is holy. He does not say, be holy for Mary is holy. God says, be holy for I am holy. You can always find somebody worse than you. Well, our church may be dead, but we're not as dead as the church down the street. You're not to be measuring yourself by the church down the street. We are to be measuring ourselves by the perfect person of Christ. And that's essentially what discipleship is. It's one person placing Christ as the mark and marching towards Him. That's it. So when he says there's a measuring line amongst the house of God, I'd rather submit to you that it's not cubits and feet and inches and kilometers. But the measuring line in God's house is how close we are to the law of God. Interesting that, that people would say, uh, that people would say concerning the church, doctrine doesn't matter. And that, that's, a, that's a, a, a prominent thing that a lot of people holler nowadays. They've been hollering for 25 years. Doctrine divides. Let's just, can't we all just get together about love? Um, doctrine is important. Rules are important. If rules are not important, then stop playing football. Stop playing baseball. If rules don't matter, stop screaming at the umpire when he misses the call. And just say, it doesn't matter what's right or wrong. Just as long as we love each other, right? Woo! Ah. It's a whole lot different when you put it in those terms, isn't it? When you take the spin off a lot of this garbage out here, people realize, yeah, rules do matter. Whether it's in sports, whether it's out here on the highway. We have wrecks constantly that kill people because somebody didn't obey the rules. They didn't stop when they should have stopped. They didn't stay in their lane, mind their own business. And churches have problems when rules don't matter. Churches have problems. People have problems when doctrine doesn't matter. Come up with all sorts of wonky things out here. Um, kind of got a little ahead of myself on this, but are, are we still in? Are you still in Ezekiel? I'd like you to notice here Ezekiel forty-seven. Now, there's, here's something that's uh, that's fantastic. Ezekiel forty-seven, verse one. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the door eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought me, then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without under, 
unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on that side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cupids. He brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. Well, here's a man measuring from the house of God. And the further he measures, the deeper the water gets. You ever noticed in the Scriptures how many times the, the cleansing of water uh, it is compared to the to the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it can also be applied to the proclamation of the gospel. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? The Bible asks, by taking heed thereunto thy word. There, there is a cleansing effect to the gospel of the gospel to us, God's people. If you, in your marriage, will apply what the Bible tells you to do as a husband and what the Bible tells you to do as a wife. Your marriage will be a hundred times better. Problem is, is we want our wife to do what the Bible says, or we want our husband to do what the Bible says, and we don't want to do what the Bible says ourselves. But you notice this here, what, what happens. The further he goes out, the deeper the waters get. In other words, the Bible that God has given to us is sufficient to any man or woman, regardless of what stage of life you're in. There's little ankle-deep water for children to understand Adam and Eve, Daniel in the den of lions, and David and Goliath, Samson, the strong man of Israel, the nice little Bible stories, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. But as you move along through life, the doctrine gets a little deeper, doesn't it? And it gets a little more complex, doesn't it? To the point where you get to the end and you start talking about the sovereignty of God and the perfection of God and the greatness of God and the holiness of God. And where did God come from? If that is not a river too deep for you to cross and you can't swim in, I don't know what is. Well, what's he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that this house, this, this flow of water that comes is sufficient for us wherever we are at. And you may be a person that spends your whole life in knee-deep water. You may be a person that spends your life in water that's waist-deep. I know that there are some preachers who can get way out there. One I can think about in our day is Elder Mike Ivey. If you've ever really heard him preach, he gets way... He's, instead of feeding sheep, he starts feeding giraffes. And I'm not one of them sometimes. I don't have that intelligence. But it's for you wherever you are. Nothing in this life fits like the Bible does. Our children can read, you know, Dick and Jane, see, spot, run. And it's something to them. It means nothing to me. My children probably can't read Dante's Inferno. I can barely read it. I can hardly read Shakespeare. But to them, it, it means nothing. But there comes a point where we start laying aside certain things because we've grown beyond it. 
The Bible is never a book that is to be laid aside because you've grown beyond it. There's always something more, no matter how far you've grown. So let's look here. He says, my house shall be built in it. Um, let's, let's turn back to Zechariah chapter 2. We'd like to, to get a couple of more things here before we conclude our thoughts this morning. Where are we at? Zechariah chapter 2. Verse Four, and he said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Uh, and if, if you recall what we read earlier, that he said, My, my towns and my cities shall spread abroad uh, through prosperity. You might find those things laid out for you here in chapter 2. But this is interesting, that, that Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. Well, we can't be talking about the streets of Jerusalem because there was a wall that surrounded Jerusalem, right? As a matter of fact, that was what Nehemiah's purpose was. Uh, when you read about Nehemiah and his efforts in, in the book here, Nehemiah also spoke and ministered uh, to Israel after they came back from Babylon, and his goal was to get them to rebuild the wall. Zerubbabel and Joshua and Zechariah were to get them to rebuild the temple. So Zechariah here rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. But this city shall be spread abroad without a wall. Verse 5, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. If the house that's under consideration is simply just the temple located in Jerusalem, that really doesn't fit this. Uh, mainly because that temple is not there anymore. Now, uh, will earthly Jews rebuild it? Sure, it's possible. Will earthly Jews go back and re-inhabit this city? Oh, certainly very possible. How can you have a city that exists without walls, whose protector is God. One way you can have that is we're not talking about a building. We're talking about people. You know, there's Christians in America that believe in Christ. There's Christians in Africa that believe in Christ. There's people in India that believe in Christ. There are Jews in Jerusalem that believe in Christ. Who's their protector? It's not the government. The government's not protecting us. The government's trying everything it do to shut us down sometimes. Who is the one protector of us all? Almighty God. And we sing that song, uh, The Lily of the Valley, The Bright and Morning Star, and there's a line in there, you know, a wall of fire about us, there's nothing uh, I should fear. That's where they get it from. Who's protecting us on our daily life? It's Almighty God. Who's protecting our churches from being closed here in America? It's Almighty God. But even the worst thing that can happen to you to be drug out into the street 
through persecution, murdered, killed right there in front of everybody. Who's still protecting you? Almighty God. Because the worst thing that anybody can do to us is kill us. They cannot take our soul and they cannot take our eternal life. That belongs in the hand of God. The worst they could do is hasten us onto glory. And that wouldn't be such a bad thing, would it? See, he says here that when he returns to Jerusalem with mercies, that his house will be built in it. Uh, let's notice Second Samuel, if you would. Where is Second Samuel? Over here in front of Kings. Second Samuel chapter 7. In Second Samuel chapter 7, notice reading in verse 12. We'll go from Second Samuel, and then we're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 2. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. This is God speaking to David. He says, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You say, well, uh, simple, that was Solomon. When David died, Solomon became king. Solomon was actually able to build a house. Well, from a practical sense, that's true. God wanted to build a house for God. Do you remember that? He said, you know, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of God dwells in curtains. It's, it's a shame that my house is better than God's house. I'm going to build a big house for God. And Nathan the prophet said, well, sure, that sounds right. You know, the Lord knows your heart. Go ahead. And the Lord appears to Nathan in a dream or vision. He says, uh, Correct that. You tell David he'll not build a house for me. Somebody after him is going to build a house. And, well, maybe that's Solomon. Maybe that's the only application. Well, what does the Bible say? That's always important, right? you have a question? What does the Bible say? Acts chapter 2. Verse 29. Acts 2, verse 29. And, you know, this is an interesting thing, even if you start talking about folks who are pre-millennial or post-millennial or whatever it is, they're looking for some thousand-year reign in the future when Christ will come back and all His saints will come with Him. If Christ comes back and all His saints come with Him, is David a saint? Is We think He is. Let's give Him the benefit of the doubt. Christ comes back and all His saints come with Him. David's probably going to come with Him, right? But the scripture was, when you're dead and your body sleeps with, the fa- with your fathers, then shall the house of God be built. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. What a great way to begin a sermon. Men and brethren, David's dead. What does that mean? Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath of him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Solomon. That's not what, you're, that's not what the text says, is it? Who's going to be raised up? He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. 
He's seeing this before, spake of the thousand year millennial reign. It's not what it says, is it? He's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up. When Christ was raised up from his grave, he ascended back to glory and sat down at the right hand of the Father to inherit a throne of glory and to look over a kingdom. Christ is on His throne right now. He is not looking to be king. He is king. He's sitting on His throne right now, ruling over the affairs of all men, whether you see it or not. This house that was built supersedes a physical rock structure in Jerusalem. This house that was built is not brick and stone. This house that was built, friends, is you and me. The church that Jesus Christ left here in the first century was not an accident. It was not second plan. Father, they wouldn't let me play with them. Let me do something else. No. He came for a purpose. To save His people from their sins and to build a house for God. Watch this. In 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where is Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 3. Notice verse, uh, I think it's verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but if I tarry long, oh, verse 14, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in what? What's that word say? The house of God. What are we talking about here? Do you live in Jerusalem? We're talking about a temple over there? No. What does he say here? That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is, ah, here we go, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church of God is the house of God. How simple this is. When you actually look and read what the Bible has to say. When Paul wrote in Ephesians, he said, Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians chapter 5. As Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. The house of God, the people of God, is here by intent. The doctrine of the house of God matters. And it's very interesting as you look here in chapter 3. There's something that's laid out for us in chapter 3 that I'm not sure we've ever ever really taken into consideration amongst us. I've heard people say, uh, say you'll have a preacher ordination or something, they'll charge the preacher. I wish we could have gone to one yesterday, but I missed it. But I've heard in the past, whatever you do, make the church your priority. 
God forbid that, that you lose your wife, but He can give you another one. Let me ask you, what do you think the Bible says? Guess what? We have words here. We can read words. Let's see what it says. Verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man, not a woman, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he, not she, but he desireth a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. Well, if the bishop is supposed to be the husband of one wife, if you have a female pastor, there's something wrong with that. It doesn't say that she must be the wife of one husband or that they may be the spouse of one spouse. It says that he. See, gender is important, by the way. It's not fluid. He must be the husband of one wife. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Given the hospitality, out to teach. Boy, we've ordained a lot of people that can't teach, haven't we? Not given to wine, no striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. I don't want to read anymore. Because all that stuff up to this point has been fairly easy. Uh, you, you're not going to be greedy of filthy lucre and be an old Baptist preacher. It's just that, that's not going to work. You know, Benny Hinn that stands up here uh, there with his $30,000 tie tax, uh, that's a little bit more than most of our preachers make for a whole year. And he's got tie tax and car rims, things like that. Uh, I really don't want to read this next verse because I think if we really took this seriously, it might change a lot of the things that we look at. What does it say? One that ruleth well his own house. So when I tell my children, this is my house, they get offended. What do you mean it's your house? This is what God said, not me. I'm the one that pays the bills. I put the electric here. I put the water here. I make sure you've got a roof over your head, food on the table, clothes on your back. This is my house. Whoever pays the bills gets to be the boss. And if God has paid your bills, he gets to be your boss. The church doesn't get to tell God what we're going to do. God gets to tell the church what to do. He gets to measure us. We don't get to measure Him. One that ruleth well his own house. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. See what it says there? There's a parenthetical expression here now. Paul steps kind of out of this and he kind of gives this parenthetical expression here. Four. If one know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the God? See, this is a question that says if he doesn't even know how to rule his own house, how do you think he's going to take care of the house of God? And I think that term how is, is, is a multiple how. It's not only how can he but how will he observe these things? So, when we say, make the church your priority, and if you have to lose everything in life, so be it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if he can't even govern the small little group that's in his house, how do you think he's going to govern the church of God? 
because there's far more responsibility and far more personalities and far more differences in a congregation than there is within the walls of your own house. Oh, and by the way, we're talking about houses, right? Peter says, if this house or this tabernacle be dissolved, I have a building eternal in the heavens. So that house even goes beyond the structure of wife and children. That house even goes to himself. Paul said, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest at any time when I preach to others, I myself have been a castaway. I mean, if you can't even control yourself, how in the world shall you properly minister to the church of God? See, I think if we took that under consideration about half our churches would get rid of their pastor. This is why preachers don't preach a lot on the Christian home. Because David said, although my house be not so with God. David looked at his house. Oh boy, it wasn't that a display of disaster, wasn't it? I, he, had his, he had his sons raping his, their, their half-sisters. He had the other sons murdering his other half-sons. It was just an absolute... David was a man of war and it was played out in his family. That's why God said to him, you'll not build me a house because my house will not be built on war. There'll be one that comes after you. And in Solomon's day, it was a day of peace. It, it really was. You go back and look. There were no enemies that plagued them. But ultimately, you go all the way down through time and you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And this may be why in the book of Zechariah, he goes on to remind them that when Zerubbabel builds this house, there's that very famous passage in Zechariah, not by might, nor by sword, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The house of God that was built when Jesus Christ gave His life on Calvary. It was not built by might. It was not built by a raging army. It was built by a lowly Lamb of God who gave His life selflessly. For a wretch, for a sinner. It was built by a God who said, I will return to Jerusalem and I will return with mercies. And I'll build my house. Thank you for your good, patient attention.